Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Great segue. And he was vomited onto the dry ground. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we have been looking at the book of Jonah. Just a couple of things to refresh your memory or to bring you guys up to speed if you haven't been here with us over the past couple weeks. The book begins with what is a typical prophetic call, the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. That word of the Lord is, is an announcement that Jonah should go to the Ninevites to prophesy amongst them. In the next scene, we see Jonah doing the complete opposite and going down to Joppa to board a ship heading for Tarshish. And if we look at the map, Nineveh would be over here somewhere and Tarshish would be over here somewhere. In the words of George Costanza, Jonah did the opposite. He was going in the complete opposite direction. We've seen throughout chapter one this refrain that Jonah is trying to escape from the presence of the Lord. It's not as though he believed that God would not be where he was headed, but it's this idea that he was going somewhere where the people were not familiar with God, where he didn't have to speak about the things of God, where he didn't have to go to the temple and to be a part of, of what God was asking him to be a part of, to sacrifice, to read Torah, to be engaged in that culture anymore. He was going to find a place where he could just blend in and get away from this call. We've seen behind that is an underlying prejudice, perhaps, an underlying racism, perhaps, an underlying uh, national emphasis on God's people, Israel, and how Jonah was scared to death that God would allow the Ninevites to receive grace and forgiveness and mercy. The backstory behind this is the Assyrian Empire, which its capital was found in Nineveh, was oppressing Israel. It was oppressing Jonah's people, and perhaps Jonah had seen some of his folks underneath the thumb of that empire. Perhaps Jonah had seen the damage and the suffering that they could cause. And knowing who God is, Jonah, we find out in chapter four said, I ran away because I know that God is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving to the thousands of generations. 
We see Jonah knowing these characteristics about God. Jonah's theology is spot on, but wanting to run away from that because Jonah does not want these people to receive that. We've made some jumps over the past couple weeks to try to dip into that story where we, we become a part of that story and wrestling with the concept of if there's people in our lives that we don't want them to receive God's grace, if we don't want them to experience forgiveness because we can't let go of the things that they have done to us or the things that they have said about us. If sometimes we take the gospel and we hold it to ourselves and we don't want anyone else to experience it because it's too good and they don't deserve it. In the first chapter of Jonah, we also saw behind the scenes as he boards this ship, the characters that show themselves to be the ones that are actually following God, unbeknownst to them and then beknownst to them, are the sailors. When the storm hits on the sea, it says that God throws a storm onto the sea. And when that happens, their first response is to pray. Their first response is not to take the cargo from down below and throw it over so that the ship's a little bit lighter so they can maneuver it with more skill, it's to pray. Jonah, the prophet, up to this point has not said a word. And that's the job of the prophet, to be a spokesperson for God, but he's not doing his job. And the pagan sailors are the ones that are calling out to God and asking Jonah to call out to God. It's interesting that the captain of the ship, when he speaks to Jonah, he says some of the same words that were uttered by God in that first initial call, get up, kum, and call or proclaim to these people, kara. The same verbs are used by this pagan captain to get Jonah to start talking to his God. For Jonah, um, the, the best move for him would be to, to be sacrificed, to die. When the sailors ask, what must we do to you in order for this storm to go away and for us to be okay? He says, throw me overboard. He doesn't say, let's turn the ship around. I've got a job to do. I've been running from it. He just says, let me die. Perhaps because his angst against this people is so deep that he doesn't want to speak to them, even if it means his own life would be saved. He would rather perish then go do, and what, go do what God wants him to do. So we see at the end of, of chapter one, Jonah has been tossed overboard and we're not quite sure what's going on here until we see or we read these words that say, but Yahweh. It's interesting in the Bible, there's oftentimes these, um, these moments where a story's going along or a passage is going along, but then there's this turn, this shift. One scholar characterizes it like this, re referring to uh, Jonah 1.17, cast overboard from the ship by the sailors, Jonah is drowning, his death, the just punishment for his disobedience of God is certain. However, in Jonah 1.17, it opens with the phrase, but Yahweh, and that makes all the difference. I want you to take that line and tuck it away in the recesses of your mind and we'll come back to it. But here the story is going on and we, we see our main character being tossed into the sea. We know the end of the story, but for an ancient audience, maybe the first time they've heard this, this would be a massive turn of events where we see God bringing about grace. The very thing that Jonah knew God would do to the Ninevites that he did not want them to experience, God was preparing for Jonah. Jonah, probably wanting to die rather than live up to his calling, cannot die because God had appointed an instrument of grace, which is this big fish 
to swallow Jonah. We talked about last week how Jonah's mindset might have been as he goes overboard thinking, finally, I can just die and have this call go by the wayside until he gets swallowed up by the fish to which he might say, are you kidding me? Really? I'm still here. This is still happening. God had created this, um, this fish to, to swallow him whole. And we'll come back to this. We also see in the midst of these very, just these first two words, an amount of control that God has over the events of this story. See, in chapter one, verse four, God is the one who throws the storm onto the sea, causing upheaval, causing Jonah to um, have to make decisions. We see Jonah choosing to be thrown overboard because he just wants to die and how God's saying, nope, you're not getting off that easy. I'm gonna bring a big fish to swallow you up and let you think about what you've done. This is the ultimate parent move. I just want you to go to your room and think about what you've done. I just want you to go into the belly of this fish and just think about what you've done, Jonah. Okay, this is the ultimate parent move where God is kind of orchestrating events to get Jonah to the end uh, where he wants him to be. We also see in the midst of this that Jonah has a purpose and he cannot escape this purpose. Oftentimes we've heard the book of Jonah taught in this way where the pastor or the teacher will say, don't run from God or he'll make your life miserable until you do what he wants you to do. I don't think that's the best way of going about it here, but we do see that God has this unrelenting purpose on Jonah's life to go to the Ninevites to preach so that they could potentially receive grace. And we see God not resting until that happens. There's some of you perhaps, and if we could just step into um, a 21st century reading of this, I do think that that understanding, that reading of the book has application for us today there's things that we are called to do very clearly. Let, leave aside vocational calling and school choice and the ever-present who should I marry issue. Let's leave that one aside for the moment and just focus on the very clear things that we as Christians are called to do, to love God, to love others, to spread the gospel in whatever way that looks like for you. I hope it doesn't look like handing out tracts and being completely non-relational uh, with people. I hope that it's born in relationship where you're having conversations and you're present in people's lives so they can trust you and you can talk to them about Jesus and they can see that as something that's transformed you. But there's certain things that we are called to do and I believe that God is relentless in how he pursues us to, to do those things and to do them well. There's moments, and I don't know if you guys can identify with this, but there's moments in my own mind where I struggle with to do or not to do. There'll be a person across the way and I'll get this leading or this nudge to go talk to them and to say some stuff and I know what they might be going through and I just go over there. And There's this inner battle of do I obey or do I stay here where it's comfortable? Do I engage or do I just stay here and do my work? My um, place where I take residence at Salisbury Christian School when I'm not teaching is the teacher's lounge. And as I'm in the teacher's lounge, I'm in the corner and I have my laptop up and I have my earbuds in and that's the signal for don't bother me, I'm trying to do work. But a lot of times in that moment, it's all I can do just to keep turning up the Spotify in order to dull, not the noise in the room, but to dull the leading of the spirit to engage with the people in that room. 
to be an ounce of grace, perhaps, in their life, to be an ounce of encouragement in the midst of the busyness that we all go through. And for us, it might not be something as extreme as go to the Ninevites and prophesy, whatever that looks like for us, but there's things that we're running from. There's things that are as simple as having a conversation. There's other things that are a little bit more weighty, like, and I bring this up quite often, having the conversation with mom and dad, having the conversation with your roommates, having the conversation with the people on your dorm floor where you begin to own this faith that you have, where you begin to let go of the pain that people have caused in your life, where you begin to love people that are unlovable, where you see the people on the margins and you go and you talk to them and you bring them in like family. Those are the things that we're called to do. And we can see even in our own life how when we run from those things, it doesn't always end up well for us. Or a lot of times, I think more often, we don't know how good it might be because we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to engage and to see what God can do. Let that be just a little challenge as you think about your life and you think about uh, your circumstances to not allow that voice of the spirit to be so low that you don't obey. Here we see, but Yahweh had appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the stomach, literally the intestines or the entrails. Just let that image uh, seep into your mind for a moment. Um, When I think about Jonah, I think about Pinocchio, And Geppetto, who's just kind of, he's taken up residence here. He's got, I believe that's his boat. He's got a door and some laundry that he's washed in the bile of the big fish. Um, Monstro, I believe, is the fish's name. But I just, you just, as a kid, you think of this big cavernous thing and you have a little light like, here I am. Guess I'll just kneel down and pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for delivering me from the ocean. It's like you have this this space to operate. Um, Any marine biologists in the room? No? Okay, but even if you're not a marine biologist, you know that that's probably not accurate. Alex? Okay. (laughs) Learning new things. Um, But we see Jonah in the stomach or the intestines, the entrails of this great big fish note, and people have pointed this out for a long time. We typically talk about Jonah and the whale in the Hebrew and in the English. It's Jonah and this this big fish. We'll get back to that in a second. But Jonah is residing within this fish for three days and three nights. For some of you in the room, you cannot wrap your mind around that. You cannot allow yourself to engage the story in a historical sense where you say, um, yeah, I buy that. Some guy hanging out in the belly of a big fish, just praying like nothing's going on for three days as he is traveling to the underworld, as we'll see. Some of you struggle with that. Some scholars struggle with that too, and I don't want to persuade you in one way or the other, but I at least want you to see perhaps this might be functioning as a symbol. In a Sumerian myth, which is a myth that has to do with this goddess Inanna, um, the length of time, three days and three nights, is a literary device that's used to symbolize the length of time that it would take to travel from here to the underworld, to Sheol, to the bad place, to the place where the dead people go. 
in this myth, that's how long it would take. And we can see the author of Jonah picking up on some of these themes. I don't care at the end of the day where we land on if this happened or this didn't happen. I want you to see though, as an ancient reader, this kind of stuff would have been throwing up signals all over the place. Flags would be going up for a reader saying, oh, I get it. I understand what's happening here. This is a symbol for this journey to the center of the earth, more or less, okay? In an ancient mindset, and this is, this is pretty much straight from, from Genesis 1, a lot of it, we have a picture of what the world looked like. Now understand, we have the advancements of telescopes and we know things about what's down there, like soil layers and things, and we know about the universe and we know some stuff. Other smarter people do. I'm not sure I know a whole lot about it. But back in the day, you didn't have Hubble. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have a telescope. You looked up and you saw it was blue and you thought, I bet there's some water up there. Especially when it starts to rain, you think, yeah, maybe there's a big tank of water up there. And when it rains, some doors open up and some of the, the buckets fall out. And maybe that's one of the angels' job to kind of fly around and dump buckets of rain on us. And that's why we pray to them. And we think that that's cute and that's funny. We wouldn't have known anything different then either, but they've created this um, three-tiered universe where we see the throne of God and heaven up there somewhere. And there's this crust, this dome crust. Have you guys seen the show Under the Dome? No, okay, there's this show called Under the Dome and people live under the dome. It's very aptly named. Um, But above that crust is water. When they talk about the flood in Genesis 6, they talk about the floodgates opening up. For an ancient audience, they might not have been too far away from actually thinking that there were floodgates that opened and allowed some of the water from above to be released onto earth. If you go back and you read the Genesis 1 account, there's a separation of the waters from above and the waters from below. And this is all right in this this understanding of the world. So you have heaven up there somewhere and we're not too far away from that because we have no idea what heaven is like. But when we talk about it, it's usually, oh yeah. Yeah, it's, it's up there somewhere. We talk about the heavens being up there and that's where God lives. And we, when we think about the bad stuff, it's down there somewhere. Some of us aren't too far away from heaven up there, bad place down there. But in this idea, we have uh, the world that's kind of on its, on its uh, not an axis, but has pillars that's holding up the land. We've got water below here, but underneath all of that is a place called Sheol. It's a place that symbolizes the underworld. When you die, you go there and you just kind of exist. You're just there. You're just, it's not good. It's not bad. You just are. All throughout the Psalms, we see this language of that's where people go when they die and that's where people go when things are bad. I'm, I'm doing a study on Psalm 116 now where this guy is either really sick or his enemies are out there so much so that he claims to be among the dead. He claims to be residing in Sheol, in the underworld, okay? This brings us to a, a conversation about miracles in history. And again, I don't really wanna pursue this too much, um, but I think some, some scholars can help us here, certainly, 
it is futile to argue over whether such a thing would be possible. The author is telling us a story in order to say some very important things about God and all arguments over the fish tend to divert our attention from the main points being made. Remember, we've talked about in the past, we lose sight of Jonah's God because we spend so much time thinking about Jonah's fish. We don't understand even the point of the story. And this is a point that that transcends the argument of whether or not it happened. It doesn't matter. That's not the issue that's going on here. It's the things that we're learning. For this author, it says, the important fact is that Jonah, despite his disobedience, his inability to pray, and his acceptance of his just sentence of death has been saved from a watery grave by the totally undeserved grace of God. This story is not just about a fish and how someone could exist in it for three days. This story is about resurrection. This story is about transformation. This story is about a completely disobedient, recalcitrant prophet who does not want anything to do with God and God says, you're not getting off that easy. You're with me. We can't lose sight of that in the midst of historical and scientific debate. Jonah's God is the key to understanding all of this story. And as we stepped into this chapter, I knew that there was going to be some landmines that we were going to have to sidestep or just run through together and hope that we make it out on the other side. Um, But when we think about this story, I don't want us to get lost in did it or did it not. I want us to see the things that go beyond that into what do we learn about God as a result of this. But Yahweh had appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the stomach or the intestines or the entrails of the fish for three days and three nights. And from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God for the first time in this story. He's finally doing the things that he should have been doing a chapter ago. It's taken all of this mess for him to finally say, Okay. It's taken all of this stuff, this running and this being thrown out into the sea, this being swallowed up by a huge fish for him to say, I can get on board. And the prayer that he utters inside of this fish is one that I think should cause us to pause for a second and just reflect on what's what's going on here. It says, in my distress, I called to Yahweh and he answered me. Where is Jonah? Where is he when he's praying this? He's in the fish, yet he says, in my distress, I called to Yahweh and he answered me. For the ancient audience, this would be like turning on OC 104 and hearing R&B and you being able to say, oh, that's R&B or oh, that's rap, I get that. Or turning on 99.9, heaven forbid, and you hearing a country tune and you say, oh, that's country, I get it. Oh, that's bluegrass, I'm, I'm right on board. It's being able to identify the genre of music like this. It doesn't take you a long time to distinguish between ACDC and Conway Twitty. For an ancient audience, when they hear this line, they think, Thanksgiving tap back into our psalm series for a bit. There's three main types of psalms. Praise psalms, where you say, God is great. He created everything. He's good. He look at all this stuff. Great. You have lament, where it's, God, you're terrible. I can't stand you. Why don't you do what you're supposed to do? And then you have a thanksgiving that says, 
I'm on the other side of lament. I'm on the other side of thinking God is terrible to seeing how God's grace and mercy has delivered me. And Jonah, from the belly of the fish, says, I've called and you have heard me. It's one of two options here. Either this is something that he prayed after the fact, looking back, or this is something that he was praying in the moment to say, I know you're good. I know you can deliver. I know I won't end up here in this fish and you will hear me and you will put me where you want me to be. For an ancient audience, they would have definitely heard this. In my distress, I called to Yahweh and he answered me. And they'd say, what is this guy doing praying a thanksgiving? He's in a fish. And perhaps there's this moment of turning where Jonah's faith becomes, I am completely absent to, now I'm starting to believe what's going on here. And in this, this moment, a thanksgiving is offered from the belly of Sheol. And remember back to our, our, our thing, this is Jonah's journey. He keeps going down and down and down. He goes down to Joppa, down into the ship, down uh, away from Nineveh. And now he's going down to the underworld, as far away from God as you could possibly go. He's going from the belly of Sheol. I cried out and you listened to me. You threw or you flung me into the depth, into the heart of the seas and the currents overwhelmed me. All of your breakers and rollers, they swept over me. He's telling this story of his near death experience and how God has delivered him. As for me, I said, I have been banished or driven out. This is the same term that's used in Genesis of Adam and Eve when they're kicked out of the garden. This is Jonah saying, I can relate to that. And God has given me this call. I've disobeyed and I've been booted from your sight. And this is exactly where Jonah wanted to be. He wanted to be away from God, but I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters, they engulfed me up to my neck. The deep surrounded me. Again, tap back into an ancient Near Eastern cosmology. That kind of stuff gets me going. I can see from the glazed overlooks that it doesn't get you going as much as it does me. But for an ancient audience, what they would have heard is the deep, the tahome, chaos, complete and utter fear would have gripped them. This is the thing that they're most scared of. This is the thing in Genesis 1 that the Spirit of God is hovering over as if to say, you can't touch me. But this is the thing that's swallowing up Jonah. He's as far away from God as possible. The waters, they engulf me up to my neck and the deep, this chaos, this sea monster, this scary abyss is taking over and seaweed was wrapped around my head. I think that's a nice little detail in the prayer and the poem of, of Jonah here. To the foundations or roots of the mountains, I went down and remember in their mindset, the mountains were what was holding up the earth. He's going down as far as you can go to the land whose bars close behind me. He's talking about entering into Sheol where he's just going to exist and, and cease, cease to be. But you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit when my life was ebbing away. I remembered you finally. It took all this stuff for him to finally get there. Think about your life for a second. When things are going good, when things are okay, it seems as though that might be the time when we're far, but when stuff starts to shake, when relationships start to show their cracks, when people start to harm or hurt us, that's when we draw near. 
And Jonah is embodying this to a T. When my life was ebbing away, that's when I remembered you. I was talking to um, a new friend of mine who's going through a difficult situation. And his understanding of God in the midst of cancer is completely admirable. And one of my thoughts in the midst of that is, why does it oftentimes take that to get our mind to be right? Why does it take us being thrown over a boat, swallowed by a fish, going down to Sheol, to the, to the underworld, for us to finally say, I remember you. I remember what you're asking me to do, and I'll do it. Why can't we just, in the midst of this comfortable moment, declare to follow and to follow well. His prayer would rise to, to Yahweh in his holy temple. Again, we see this idea here. Um, to those who cling to worthless idols, they forsake Yahweh's committed or covenant love. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. At the end of chapter one, we see the sailors, the pagan sailors offering sacrifices to Yahweh. And here, finally, we see Jonah doing the same thing. These chapters end on the same notes, but they're radically different in, in how, they, how they got there. Jonah has been delivered. One commentator says, one of the most important things the author would have us see is that when faced with similar perils, there is no significant difference between the pagans and Jonah concerning prayer, deliverance received, and the type of response to the source of salvation. A sincere cry to Yahweh is efficacious, whether from a pagan or from one of his own rebellious prophets. Hear that statement. A sincere cry to Yahweh, to God, now for us, to Jesus, is efficacious. It works. It avails much. It actually brings about change and transformation and results, whether it comes from that guy over there who you have written off years ago, or if it comes from you. What we learn in this story is that God, like Jonah says, he's gracious, he's good, he's merciful, and he's waiting. He's waiting for you to get it. He's waiting for you to finally remember. If Jonah himself experienced deliverance from a deserved death, maybe then he will have some ability to commiserate with the citizens of the city and nation to whom he had been called to preach. You'd think that this would bring about transformation in Jonah's life where these series of events would actually bring about a turn in his life, but we don't see that in him. Here's the question. Do we see that in ourselves? As we sit here and as we claim to follow Jesus, is it true that our lives are transformed? Is it true that we begin to see the people that are hurting and broken and suffering and stand side by side with them in solidarity through Christ? Is it, is it true that we begin to move away from sin towards holiness? Is it true that we're not the same person that we were a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Is it true that Jesus has so radically transformed who we are that we're allowing ourselves to die daily? Or is this just a thing? 
Is this just the additive to help us fall asleep at night? We talked in the beginning about um, a moment in this text where things are going very, 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 very badly for Jonah, but God enters into the story. I have one New Testament text that I want to read to you, and then we're, then we're done. As for you, you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. That guy out there, that girl over there, me, you, and everyone in between, we were here we were living in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were en route to Sheol, even when we were going down to the underworld, even when we were so far away from him, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. One more verse, 10. For we are his workmanship and we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's this purpose that we have that's not too dissimilar from Jonah. Yes, the call is a bit different, but we have been created to do what God is asking us to do, to love, to forgive, to live as his son lived, to live as transformed because of what he has done for us, to live in light of that. I think that there's some things that we can see in Jonah that transcend whether or not it happened, that transcend the story of the big fish, and hopefully you can grab, grab onto those and live in light of that, those two words. But God, who you were, you're not now. Who you used to be, we're moving in a different direction. I hope that that's true of you, and I hope that that's true of me, and I hope that it doesn't take us falling off a boat and being swallowed by a fish. I hope that it doesn't take cancer and divorce and financial disparity. I hope that it doesn't take all those things to get us to be able to say, I remember and I will follow.